Uh, I wonder whether you might, because I've heard you speak Russian, I wonder whether you might indulge me, uh, this is for the introduction at the beginning, I wonder whether you might be able to translate into Russian for me. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. So, no, I don't quite understand what you mean. So, so what, what I say at the beginning of the podcast, yes. you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. That's oh, what no, I say. I wonder whether you could translate that for me in Russian. It's called the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Wow. <laughs> That's very good. I didn't expect you would be game. Um, thank you very Absolutely. much indeed. I mean, podcast, I had to leave as it was. Because, <laughs> and I think it's, it's probably actually the same. It's, in Russian, it's traslatsia, but I don't know whether they say pod traslatsia, so I've left it as pod. Would you like to have another stab at it? I'd like no. to. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. There is no such thing as a free lunch, and that's fine because the lunch I had before this podcast interview was recorded was delightful. Asparagus and goat cheese, pancit brill with potato gnocchi, baby gem and shrimp beurblanc, followed by orange posset with a blackberry jelly and white chocolate crumbs. It's not that I wrote down what I was eating as I ate it, more that I kept a copy of the menu when I left. It's a lovely menu too. Century New Gothic is the dominant font, which on close inspection really comes alive when it's italicised. I wouldn't normally provide such detail on the food I eat. But really, when else am I going to have an opportunity to read out a menu? But it was integral to the event. These podcasts aren't just interviews, but a sort of journal entry to audio diaries that document a journey through the classical music world today. My subsequent conversation with Navoya Opera Artistic Director Jan Latham Koenig explored a bilateral cultural project that brings together conservatoire-trained musicians from Britain and Russia in a new training orchestra. It's an orchestra that celebrates the strong cultural ties between the two countries and celebrates the friendship between two of their most renowned composers, Benjamin Britten and Dmitry Shostakovich. Over 300 musicians between the ages of 18 and 28 were auditioned for the Britain Shostakovich Festival Orchestra. The orchestra this year consists of 50 women and 37 men, 35 from the UK and 52 from Russia. The bass section is entirely made up of UK players, as is the harp section of one. Concerts get underway in Sochi on Monday the 9th of September, then Moscow at the Moscow State Conservatory, St Petersburg, Symphony Hall in Birmingham, Nottingham, Manchester, Edinburgh, Basingstoke, and finally Cadogan Hall in London on the 25th of September. More details, including a link to the website, are in the show notes. I spoke to Jan after the lunch as people were saying their goodbyes to one another in addition to discovering that he was quite game for attempting Russian translation, something he'll no doubt rely on when rehearsals get underway in the next fortnight. I also learned about the difference between UK and Russian orchestral musicians and obtained some first-hand recollections of singing for Benjamin Britten. Tell me about this orchestra. This is a new orchestra, and as far as I can make out, it's quite a bold thing to be doing. Yes. Uh, 
I'm now starting my eighth season as uh, artistic director of the Novaya Opera of Moscow, which is one of the leading opera houses of the city of Moscow. And uh, during my work, uh, I've come into close contact with Sir Laurie Bristow, who is the uh, British ambassador to Moscow and is a passionate music lover and a very good amateur viola player. And uh, one thing that we've established during the last few years is that Novaya Opera actually performs a concert in the British Embassy as a sort of token of British-Russian cultural cooperation for Solori Bristow. And uh, during those projects, I usually have been staying at the Embassy. And it so happened that uh, when we did this concert in November uh, 2017, uh, Laurie came back one day from a meeting with Sergei Lavrov, and he said, the two governments have just agreed that 2019 is going to be the year of music between the two nations. And usually we just sort of export a few of our musical products to Russia and they do the same to England and everybody says how marvellous and then the next year the whole thing is completely forgotten as if we'd been drawing something in the sand. He says, you know, I would like to do something different. What could we do? And so together we came up with the idea of creating a first-class level artistically uh, uh, of an orchestra comprising both Russian and British musicians, young musicians at the beginning of their careers with all the enthusiasm and hope for the future that makes these projects so worthwhile, which would, apart from anything else, create a very interesting musical sound because both countries, which both have superb musical traditions but in very different ways, it will give the young musicians a, a dual opportunity to get to know each other, one, uh, to, to complement each other's strengths and improve their weaknesses, to look at first-class British and Russian repertoire, and above all, to improve cultural understanding between the two nations, which, particularly with an eye on the future, which is so much encapsulated when you work with young musicians. There is a, uh, there's an obvious thing which I sort of hesitated to ask you about until you mentioned the political word um, during your introduction, which is that uh, I suppose this is the thing that I want to gain an understanding of. Did you, uh, did you come up with this idea? Did you develop it, run with it because of what was going on politically between Britain and Russia? Or was it... Was it something that was seen as a, as a foil? I would say the following. If you look at historically the relations between Great Britain and Russia, uh, there have always been moments of political tension, of less tension. But throughout all those moments, what has always somehow shone through has been the importance and continuation of cultural relations. And I think probably unconsciously we both thought that myself and the British ambassador that creating a project like this 
would do a great deal to build bridges between the two countries, even in the moment of, shall we say, political tension. And we thought that using culture to improve the situation as well as uh, using music as the ideal international language to advance this idea can only be positive. It's precisely in times of political tension that culture becomes the greatest unifying and most healing weapon. Um, and, and at the heart of that is Britain and, Britain and Shostakovich. I, I wonder whether uh, you can tell me what both of those composers mean to you. A great deal. Um, as a boy, I took part in many performances of Britain's War Requiem, uh, conducted by the composer and took part in the recording of it where the composer conducted and I would say it was almost entirely due to the extraordinary inspiration which these experiences gave me which led me to become a conductor I was already a pianist and a violinist but orchestral music was just at the beginning of my interest I mean it was the interest was at its in its infancy and seeing the way Britain worked with the orchestra, seeing the extraordinary sounds that he produced and the, and the inspiration of this piece, which has such a strong emotional appeal to the listener. And I say this because how many composers writing in the 1960s can have that effect on the public? The, the War Requiem, as I, as I understand it, was had as... I, I may over, overplay this, but my impression is that it had as big an impact on the audience as Peter Grimes did. No doubt at all. It was approximately 16 years later. but And, of course, Peter Grimes was not a political occasion at all. It was a purely cultural one. It signalled, although people didn't realise it at the time, a sort of a renaissance of British opera, which, you know, let's face it, had never been very strong. Precisely. You think of Purcell, and then you think of, you know, certain 18th century sort of Baroque operas, Arne, you know, John Gay, Beggar's Opera. But let's face it, there really wasn't very much. Even the early 20th century, you had, you know, some operas of of uh, Holst, one of which, by the way, is very good, Savitri, a chamber opera, but you don't think of British operas until Benjamin Britten uh, as anything very special. Um, and so that Peter Grimes wasn't just the making of, Brit of Benjamin Britten as a composer, but it was, uh, it was the signalling of a renaissance of a British operatic tradition. And let's be fair, although they're not so much performed, led to operas by Maxwell Davis, uh, by Michael Tippett, now much later on by George Benjamin, Thomas Ades, that is to say it was really the start of an era where British composers could really hold their own with anybody else. But I want to st stress this was cultural. The War Requiem was a very different thing because the War Requiem was actually a political occasion. As you well know, Galina Vishnevskaya was not allowed to take part in the world premiere, and Madame Furtseva, the then Russian cultural attaché, uh, in justifying the decision not to let, uh, to let Vishnevskaya appear, 
One has to look at it in the context of this was barely 16 years since the end of the Second World War, when having suffered what we know now is about 40 million deaths during the Second World War, she said, how can you stand beside a German baritone and sing a piece of music in front of an audience? And it is a, of course, if you like, it wasn't the right decision. But at the same time, the bit, it's very easy for us Brits who were not occupied. And although we lost many civilians and soldiers in the war, it was but a mere pinprick compared to what the Russians lost. And therefore, I'm very loath to condemn attitudes like that when we did not suffer. It's like people who, uh, who condemn... Uh, who, who are so glib about what they would have done, let's say, in the 30s in Nazi Germany. It's very easy to say that because you weren't there. Um, and that's why, I, although I don't agree with the decision, I have to understand it, at least. Uh, I suppose my assumption is that it, it, was a, it was a massive deal as a performer. Uh, yes, but it did have an enormous political consequence because uh, it was the idea that... It was to uh, celebrate the rebuilding of Coventry Cathedral. It was a symbol of Nazi destruction. The fact that it was an English tenor, a German baritone, this is what he wanted. And of yeah. course, they did the recording, and a Russian soprano was to emphasize uh, that there has to be a major reconciliation between... And don't forget, this was 1962, when Cold War was at its height, and... Relations between Germany were just beginning to improve. Do you recall how you felt participating in that? Well, we didn't take part in the world premiere. We took part in the recording and the first London performance, which was some months later. But the atmosphere was absolutely electric because we'd had the Cuba crisis. Mm. Uh, uh, there was a sort of slight paranoia on both sides. And also, what made it even more poignant... Was, although it was to try and reconciliate the countries after the Second World War, the poetry and the content, which was, I mean, apart from the Latin Requiem Mass, was actually poetry about the First World War. And, and one of the things that I remember as a child was this extraordinary final poem, Strange Meeting, when, when uh, Wilfred Owen actually uh, imagines a dead... British soldiers speaking to a dead German soldier. And the way Britain sets this, it, it really, even as I'm saying this to you, creates goose pimples. Uh, and, and I don't know how Was to it put... Was it warped? Did it seem quite warped? Or? No, it seemed unbelievably moving and intense. And, you know, I'm from a generation, of course... I wasn't alive during the war, but my parents, my mother, she lived in occupied Denmark throughout the war and so have, has very, very strong memories of being occupied. Now, admittedly, uh, occupying, uh, the, the Danish occupation was probably the mildest of right. all the Nazi occupations. Nevertheless, an occupation is an occupation, yes. and she still has extraordinary memories, which she transmits to me and I met so many of her friends and her elderly relatives who lived through this period 
which probably also provoked such an interest historically in the Second World War. What would she have made of, or what did she make of, of Britain's work? Or, or his she came to the performances. You know, all mothers want to see their sons yeah, yeah, perform. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, as she's half Polish and half Danish, uh, I would say her attitude towards you know the Russians, the Germans, it was still rather, should we say, uh, mixed. She was. She went to. Well, a bit like Galena. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, she because she was born in Danzig, which, as you know, was a free state then. Yeah. But uh, you know, she said the servants were all German, but uh, there was it was a mixture of Polish and German uh, population. But it was. Uh, but it, of course, it's where the Second World War began. But she went to boarding school in England. But all the holidays when she or the, when she went from Dansk to England, they spent several nights in Berlin. So she remembers the incredible parades, the Nazi parades. So she was very much part of. She, she saw everything, and today she's still alive. She still speaks with extraordinary fervor and intensity of this period. And I want to emphasize to you the difference between people who lived through that period and those who didn't. When I ask her what it was like, she says something very interesting. She says, obviously, it was an experience I would never want to go through again. But looking back on it, it was absolutely an experience that I did not regret having had, which makes sometimes people like you and me feel that, in a ridiculous sort of way, we missed out on something. Yes. Yes, I, I understand. I, I ask you all of that about Britain because uh, there was something in the in the introduction that you gave at the, uh, before the meal uh, about how the, the the close relationship between Britain and Shostakovich, given that they didn't actually meet until 1972, I think I'm right in saying. No, they actually met in 1960 for the first okay. time in, in the royal box of the Festival Hall during... A concert of the Leningrad Philharmonic, but it wasn't. I, I don't think they met very often face to face. So my my assumption has always been that just as I know about Shostakovich, because um, because of my sort of love of Britain, that my assumption has always been that the people of Russia know about Britain because of their love of Shostakovich. And I'm wondering whether that is that is an assumption that needs to be challenged. No. Do they? Do, do Russian people have uh, experienced sort of um, a love of Britain? Do they? Are they aware of Britain? Very much so. Right, and they okay. were even uh, in the fifties and sixties, li- limitedly. But Britain took a tour, uh, 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 made a tour with his English opera group in, in nineteen sixty-four. Uh, of turn of the screw and rape of Lucretia. He went to Armenia. Uh, he, in seventy-one, he was there. Um, Partly because uh, the Russians wanted very much, they wanted to develop this cultural link in spite of or because of the political tensions. And they regarded him, interesting, a little bit, in my opinion, as the sort of British Shostakovich. Right, okay. Uh, And Shostakovich had this genuine love for Britain's music. And this I know because one of the things that has happened since I've been in Moscow is that 
when we've done premieres of Britain, uh, or indeed of Shostakovich, uh, through some mutual friends, uh, Shostakovich's widow, uh, I got to know quite well. She's been to several of my performances. As in Dimitri's? Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, yes, right, right. his third wife is very much alive and is very lucid. She's right. about 84, 85, Irina right. Antonovna, his third wife. Mm-hmm. And she was, uh, she was already married to him when Shostakovich first met Britain, or essentially when they developed the relationship. And, so, and she's actually president of our orchestra. Uh-huh. And uh, when we did the turn of the screw... In Novaya, she came to it. When we did The Rape of Lucretia, she came. When we did Shostakovich's 13th Symphony at Novaya, she came. When I did Shostakovich's Hamlet with the Orchestra of Fedoseyev last year, she was there. Um, when we did the Britain Violin Concerto in January, she was there. So she's very, she was a, a, a part of a music publishers. And she remembers Britain extraordinarily well because she actually speaks better English than her husband did and I think was able to communicate with him on a slightly more uh, fluent level. Um, did I hear you correctly when you said that you premiered Rope of Lucretia in Moscow? Yes, uh, in April this year. <laughs> sounds, sounds absolutely bizarre that it would have taken that long. Why did it take that long? Uh, well, I mean, obviously the subject material is not necessarily upbeat and, 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 exactly. and a ticket-selling thing. But. I, I, well, it sold very well, but you see on the posters, uh, only 18-plus are allowed to see it. Oh, is that how it was built? <laughs> yes, <laughs> partly because the production, although by Western standards certainly not outrageous, contained, I would say, partial nudity, and the Russians are very strict about that. Um, uh, they have a rather very old-fashioned attitude towards. Does that account for what I mean? Not not that the not that the le, huh, not that the libretto is is explicit about that. But does that partly account for why it wasn't performed until this no, year? No, because Peter Grimes has never been performed in Moscow staged uh, to this day, and uh, but still no. I'd, I would love to do it with Novaya. Why is that? Uh, do you think? Uh, because Russia. This is something that I discovered when I first started working there. I thought that since 1991, I thought it was going to be a little bit like what the previous communist bloc. Uh, because I've worked a lot in the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland since 91 and Germany and what strikes you us whoever quite bizarrely not bizarrely is how quickly they've reverted to a sort of western economic model and I don't mean just economically but I mean socially culturally if you go to Prague today or to Warsaw or to Bratislava, you know, there's nothing to distinguish it from Western Europe. Of course, small cultural differences, but not really that much. So I thought Russia was going to be much the same. Not at all. It's much, it was far more isolated. What I, tell, what I said to you in my speech before the dinner was how Novaya Opera performed Tristan and Isolde, first premiered in 1865, and it was the first ever Moscow staging of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde which gives you an idea of how still cut off they were uh, from Western 
uh, cultural practice. And yet there is a cult- there is a sense of pride in culture, and there is certainly a sense of uh, pride in musical excellence, which is what has was partly driven the Britain Festival. Uh, sorry, the Britain Shostakovich Festival Orchestra. You were talking uh, before the meal about. Uh, how Russian musicians bring one thing and British musicians bring another. Yeah. Uh, I am fascinated by that. Did you hear that in auditions? In a way, yes. In a way. <laughs> uh, there was a poise and an extraordinary sense of performance about so many of the Russian string players in the way they were auditioning that to some extent was absent from a lot of the British string players with some notable exceptions and I won't say which conservatoires but... <laughs> Don't. Uh, <laughs> that won't really help uh, me. Then <laughs> uh, uh, it wasn't... I don't know how to put it. You know, perhaps even the way they were dressed for the auditions uh, and it wasn't something that didn't just strike me but also our executive director... But then, we, but only in some instruments. It was very, inter- <laughs> very interesting. In other instruments, uh, uh, the boot was completely on the other foot. Right. And um, brass players, for example. Brass. I, I seem to recall you saying that brass players. Yes, was, we yeah. have an entire most most of the trumpets, trombones, and tuba are all British. Right. Horns as well, uh, and double basses. <laughs> uh, we, we found a far higher standard in Britain of the double basses. Uh, if I can be a little bit more precise, the main differences between the countries was in the standard of violin playing. It was very strange. Uh, the Russian standard, whether it was in Moscow, St. Petersburg, wherever, was extraordinarily high. And uh, But viola, cello, very good in both. Double bass is much better in Great Britain. Brass, on the whole, much better. With my, one to my assumption about the string players is I've seen I've seen um, uh, a Russian populated European orchestra. I'm not going to name it. Mm-hmm. And my impression of it was that they were a section full of soloists. Yes, and that's not a criticism. That's actually that that brings an entirely different kind of energy. And we actually we have an orchestra in the UK that that is. The, the string section is full of... Oh, the upper strings are full of leaders, you know, orchestra leaders, and actually that brings an entirely different energy. Yes, provided... Now, now you are right, of course, um, but I want to elaborate, because this is a very interesting point. Uh, what, will our, what our challenge will be in September will be to integrate the solistic element of these very good Russian uh, soloists into a disciplined orchestral uh, mentality, not as easy as it sounds, and where the Brits, in my opinion, have a huge advantage, is they have sometimes a more natural orchestral discipline. Um, something about the mentality, in my opinion, makes it very comfortable for them to work together in an orchestra um, and to solve problems together. Uh, so more it, collegiate, more collaborative. More collaborative. In Russia, the <laughs> atmosphere is totally different. Uh, uh, they want, need, 
and only react to total authority. I would say, as a conductor, one reason why I'm so fascinated by my own profession is the chameleon-like way in which I have to adapt my rehearsal technique to whether I'm conducting in the West or in Russia. Now, you would think, what do you mean by that? Well, simply that in the West, you, you solve problems together. Everybody's very professional. You solve problems together and work just, just develops very naturally. With Novaya Opera, it is totally the opposite. The first rehearsal, because of the abysmal sight-reading abilities of the orchestra, will be terrible. Uh, I'm laughing because I just... I would never get that in an interview with somebody, but, but that's... Okay, that's presumably that's because you know that nobody in Russia will listen to this. But even if they did, I don't they, think... They wouldn't I, be insulted by it. Not in the slightest. Oh, right, okay, right. Not in the slightest. <laughs> uh, they've never prided themselves on being great sight-readers. Right. Um, and, it's and something that we do well, then. The Brits do exceptionally well, and particularly in the field of orchestral music, and it's something the Russians have never done well, and it's not in their mentality. They, will, they need time. Is that not going to bring about a certain amount of frustration? If you've got a particular section who's good at sight reading and a particular section that isn't, or am I being ridiculously oversimplistic? You're not, and it is actually... Oh, thank <laughs> uh, Not only are you not being simplistic, it is something that, uh, that I've been giving a lot of thought to. Because um, there is a tension there, isn't there? There is a tension there, but the flip side of the good sight-reading ability is that most British musicians do concerts on very little rehearsal, so that there is a th- there is a school of thought that states that the first rehearsal is extraordinarily good, but it doesn't really change much for the performance. Uh, whereas in Russia, the first rehearsals are abysmal, but the final result is is may even be better. You know, it's a little bit the hare and the oh, tortoise. So it's a slightly different story arc. If you were to if you were to create a story arc for a particular performance, then then actually it's a, in Russia it's a slow build to the top uh, and you don't quite know what the conclusion will be. Um, and in the UK it's we start at a particular level and it could drop. Well I would never well, maybe may not maybe not drop. Perhaps not go up so much. Right. Um, uh, you know something which a Western opera house would be absolutely astonished by is if we have a new production of an opera, let's say it's in January, we might start early orchestral rehearsals already in October, November for it. And this for a Western opera house would be <laughs> yes. incomprehensible. It doesn't mean it doesn't they'd mean be bored. They'd be bored by the time we only rehearse that. We're rehearsing many other things yeah. because we're a sort of repertoire house. But they need their time. Yeah. They need their time. And but where I think can be mutually uh, where can be mutually uh, beneficial is that the Brits, who will presumably start, as you rightly said, with a, a very good grasp of everything, they may have an opportunity to really deepen their understanding of this music in all its detail and nuances. And then I think they will hear 
the very high technical level of the Russian players, particularly the higher strings, and I think both will learn something from the other. What do you hope will be the outcome of this? Because I feel an enormous amount of hope is stitched into this project. Uh, I hope that through and because of the very high artistic result that uh, not just culturally we, we, will have, we will have gained a great deal. Who knows? Some of these very talented British players may be encouraged to go and do a year studying in Moscow. Perhaps some of the Russians will want to come in England to work. You know, this is what we're all about. But above all, that this orchestra will become a permanent thing and will we'll develop a bit like the EU YO or the Gustav Mahler Orchestra, but it will never develop into being more than Britain and Russia. One thing that I'm absolutely convinced, this is a bilateral project, and the moment you start developing it, then it loses its identity. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page, or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.